Welcome to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone, the podcast where we highlight nonprofit leaders in the trenches who share the strategies and tactics they use to grow their organizations and make a difference each day. As we like to say, if you want to be discouraged by a general sense of decay, read the news. But if you want to be inspired by concrete stories of growth, talk to a nonprofit. Here's to the modern day superheroes, the nonprofit leaders. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. We're here with Sharian Koshi. He's the Director of Development at Des Moines Performing Arts. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, Grant, thanks so much for having me. This is quite an honor and a privilege. Absolutely. And you've had a variety of very fascinating experiences that I'm looking forward to diving into. But as has become our tradition here, I would love to leap straight into the thick of it. I was wondering if you could tell us a dramatic or exciting or uh, nerve-wracking experience that you've had as a development professional. Sure. So I think the nerve-wracking piece for any fundraiser is probably that first seven-figure ask when the the number of zeros is quite a bit larger <laughs> than anything you've ever seen. And so um, my story is probably a quick version of that is um, we had been uh, in conversations with one of the largest foundations in the world about uh, doing uh, a project that we were excited about that would have a kind of transformative effect on uh, the the space that we were in. So they asked us if we would do a planning grant, which was a very reasonable amount, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that with an eye towards a, a larger grant. And so we spent um, a couple of years in the developing the planning grant proposal and then deploying the planning grant and monitoring the progress, seeing if this thing would actually have legs and work. And then uh, ultimately then creating a uh, just under $3 million grant proposal um, for this foundation, which uh, as you can imagine, like anytime, obviously um, if you're sitting across from someone asking them for a million dollars or more, that's nerve wracking. But uh, even when you're submitting a proposal to a, to a foundation for several million dollars, there's a, an amount of trepidation that you can't really fathom until you do it. You're like, geez, did I dot all the I's? Did I cross all the T's? Did I spell something wrong? Um, so uh, we submitted that and then uh, several weeks later heard back that it was uh, successful and that we had been approved. Wow. And um, so then, you know, there's a bit of nerve wracking, like, geez, we need to do a really good job. Now we need to make sure that we, uh, <laughs> we go through on this. So uh, yeah, that was, I, I think that's uh, after the first gift you ask for, I think that, you know, there's sort of these threšholds of, you know, numbers where mm -hmm. you're like, wow, I, I can't believe I'm asking for an amount. But um, at the end of the day, um, for those organizations, that amount or individuals, that amount is very reasonable for them to be asked for. And I think that's the takeaway from that story is that um, if you have planned appropriately and uh, justified your case and, uh, and you know, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, then uh, those things are are well within your grasp, no matter what your experience or size of organization is. Absolutely. And I have to imagine that it then makes, if the next day there's like a $50,000 ask that's happening, it takes a little bit of Absolutely the pressure Absolutely it off does. Yeah, that's a know. very good point. So, you know, once, <laughs> once you've asked for a million dollars, asking for 50000 or 500 gets a whole lot easier. Like, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> 
right, right, jump right. change. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> I love it. Um, cool. Well, I would, I would, uh, I would love to hear the story of how you got to where you are today and the journey that led you there. I know that you've had lots of fascinating experiences. Yeah. So um, I was sharing on another podcast a few months back that uh, this is my 21st year in fundraising in some form or another, uh, and uh, I started out as a a face-to-face or door-to-door fundraiser, um, which in the the UK, it was a podcast out of Ireland. And um, so in the UK, they call them chuggers, which is not a... uh, a nice term, if you will. It's a, it's a um, kind of a pejorative term for fundraisers who stand on the street and ask for money. But um, I was asking for uh, for money from or, for organizations like the Sierra Club, uh, and uh, started doing that early on. And um, I, I think most people kind of hate that job, and I kind of grew into it and enjoyed it. And uh, you get a lot of practice uh, getting rejected, um, which is uh, helpful. So in a lot of ways, so you you sort of get immune to the no, but you also start understanding um, that uh, some sometimes that kind of confrontation strategy of um, I don't mean confrontation in a bad way, just uh, you know putting a a, a need in someone's uh, on someone's front door is important, especially when it's a, a local issue that pertains to them. But um, you get very comfortable with uh, with talking about the uh, the the needs that are in the community and get comfortable with uh, describing the case for support and those types of things. Um, and so I, I got the bug and then moved into other nonprofit roles from there and uh, kind of kept fundraising in the back. Um, of, uh, of what I was doing and then uh, worked for uh, uh, an organization called the National Speech and Debate Association um, for almost 10 years uh, doing development work for them. And uh, about four years ago, transitioned to Des Moines Performing Arts where I've been ever since. Yeah. Fascinating. And I, I think I heard this. You can tell me if this is right. Does chugger, is that a contraction of charity and mugger? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know, from? but that... That does make sense given kind of the etymological and sociological backgrounds here. So I think that does make sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll have right. to Google it afterwards, but such a cool background to have had. And that's interesting. Um, I feel like we could talk about that and uh, sort of direct sales experience. All yeah. The whole I don't time, think I ever really planned cool. on being a fundraiser or planned on being in nonprofits really. But um, once I got started, I was like, Oh, I, this makes sense to me. I can, see how this works and I can borrow from other skills that I had um, in other areas and then worked for an organization that I knew a lot about and uh, kind of grew my skills and got my CFRE um, in that uh, era of my life and um, now pursuing my ACFRE, Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive uh, credential. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Could you tell us a story about your organization today, so Des Moines Performing Arts, is there a moment or a story or something that sort of for you captures the impact that the organization has in the community? Yeah, so I mean, there are so many stories, and that's uh, that's kind of what we do uh, both as a fundraising team, but also working in an arts organization. Uh, we are sharing stories, um, sure, 
the stories that happen on the stage uh, that connect with stories that happen out in the audience. And that's the beauty of, I think, the beauty of the arts. And so um, the the through line for me is how the arts describe where we were, where we are, and where we're going as a society, as a culture. Um, and uh, I think when those experiences become hyper relevant to uh, to people in the audience. Um, that's where I think it makes a, a huge difference. Uh, so I'll, I'll share two stories. Uh, we are be- probably best known as most uh, performing arts centers are best known for um, big, bringing the best of Broadway to uh, central Iowa. And uh, we have a dance series. We have a, you know, national geographic family series, all the best of comedy, um, these great concerts and one night performances, but uh, we're, we're certainly most known for uh for Broadway. And, um, we had Dear Evan Hansen in the first year of the tour last year, and there were some just powerful, powerful reactions to that show, which, you know, certainly happened in New York, um, when I saw it there, but, um, when people saw it here in Des Moines, there was, there was a woman who just, and at one scene was, um, was bawling in her seat. And I, uh, and I knew that that had had touched her personally. I talked to um, some donors who had struggled with very similar issues that uh, the characters in the story were going through, um, and that was uh, just a cathartic experience for them to see that on stage and then to be able to talk about it. Uh, one of the so aside from the performances themselves, though, uh, we pride ourselves on a lot of uh, arts education and bringing the arts, uh, bringing students into our building to experience arts and arts arts education and curriculum connected performances, but also bringing the arts into classrooms. And um, we serve probably 55 to 65,000 students in central Iowa or across Iowa uh, every year. And one of the most uh, powerful pieces of that is uh, what we launched a couple of years ago, which are sensory friendly performances. These are sponsored or supported by uh, by donors, and uh, they're for kids who are on the autism spectrum. Um, and you know, there are, there are opportunities for those kids um, in other areas, whether they're in sports or something like that, for them to be able to experience um, similar things to kids who aren't on the spectrum. Um, and there might even be arts experiences where those kids on the spectrum can enjoy those. Uh, the difference, I think, between what those experience are, experiences are and what we do is that these are opportunities where an entire family uh, can be together at one time, enjoying something together as a, excuse me, as a family. Uh, and that's not something that's typically available to families where one of the kids is in, uh, is on the spectrum. And, um, uh, you know, you just see moms and dads in tears because they have a couple of kids, one kid's on the spectrum and one kid who isn't, and they, they're taking one kid, one place and another kid, another place. And this is a place where they can all enjoy a show together. And it's the first time for their family that they're able to experience that. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't wow. trade my job for anything wow. in the world. That is so cool. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, are there, as you look at the fundraising work that you do, are there approaches or tactics or strategies that you found to be particularly helpful that you think other development professionals might benefit from experimenting with as well? 
So, I mean, I, I'm often um, the first person to say that what works in one place may not work in another. So I, I certainly would not want to say, you know, do what I do and say and say the same things and that will work. But I will say that generally um, having a, a well thought out um, and meaningful philosophy of philanthropy in your shop is really important to understand what what it is that we do and why we do it is really important. Um, and if there was one thing uh, that I think really answers that question, I think it's that every gift matters. Um, so sometimes in the fundraising space, uh, we think of um, achieving an outcome, achieving a goal. Um, and when I work with um, with other nonprofits, whether it's I'm on the board of a, an organization or I'm helping out with our, our church capital campaign or something like that. Sometimes we're looking at the outcome, like uh, can we raise a million dollars to build this building, or can we, um, you know, raise five hundred thousand dollars to meet to make our operating support work and keep the lights on and something like that. Um, I think the reality, though, is that for that donor, their five dollars is something that means a lot to them, um, that they're participating in this endeavor. And most of the time as nonprofits, we lose sight of how that participation in that process is actually probably more important than the goal. So um, from a tactical perspective, because I know that that's uh, part of what your listeners are looking for, um, we write a handwritten note uh, by name to every donor that comes through our door. no matter the size of the gift. Um, and uh, so, you know, every time we get a gift, it's dear Grant, thank you so much. This gift is important. And it doesn't matter if that gift is $2 or $20,000 um, because we truly believe that every gift does matter and it makes a difference. Um, and that is, uh, I, I think that approach to relationship building is is probably the most important thing that we can do in philanthropy because it really is about how we love one another and we share in this understanding of what the common good or what the communal goals are. And so um, even though someone's only giving $2 doesn't mean that they don't want to be thanked and recognized and um, appreciated sure. for what uh, they've done. such a good word on having a philosophy of giving that is consistent, that makes sense, and that is then spread throughout your organization and sort of animates everything that you do. Um, Where do most new donor relationships come from? Are people finding you online? Are they attending a performance? Are they hearing about it from a friend? Yeah. Yeah. So um, certainly, you know, with a venue our size, we're the largest uh, theater in the state of Iowa. So we have, um, we have most of our people that are coming through buying a ticket to a performance and then raising their hand and saying, Hey, I'd like to learn more or be part of something bigger. And, uh, their, their passions have been ignited in that way. We do have, um, so I think that's probably the the primary source, but I think the secondary source is we do our best to try and engage our existing donors as ambassadors to share um, what they're passionate about and how they're um, seeing a difference being made in the community and how they're being part how they're part of that. And uh, we do see kind of the second most uh, donors coming through our doors um, with those kind of referrals, if you will, people saying, Hey, this is a friend of mine. They're also interested in arts education. They're also interested in the arts. And, um, 
it really is a communal experience, right? You, uh, when you go to a show, you, you want to bring your friends along, you want to bring your family along and, and experience that together and your neighbors. And so that's sort of uh, how that organically grows. And, and that's a big brilliant. part of, of what we do as brilliant, well. Brilliant. Okay. Let's now jump into a particularly fun segment, which is the pro-con debate where we've chosen the topic. Today's topic is should nonprofits do special events? And the subtitle we have jokingly uh, set as is my golf tournament worth it? Um, so that will be the topic. Um, we'll have you choose a side, whichever side you'd like, and then you'll make an opening statement. I'll try and rebut that. You can then rebut me and We'll see where we end up. So would you like to take the side that, yes, special events are worth it or no, that they're not in general? I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, some people will not be surprised, but I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with the con <laughs> that they are not, um, especially coming from an arts organization where what we do is art is events. Um, yeah, it, that's a little odd, but yeah, I'm going to go with the con. And having been a debater, oh, no. uh, in my I'm trembling life, in my boots I'm, now. I'm excited um, okay, segment. well, why don't you kick it <laughs> off then with the many issues with special events? Oh, geez, I'm just going to start with three um, and and uh, go from there. And I, I think we can focus on kind of the, the three problems I have. Uh, one is that I don't think that we're accurately counting the costs when it comes to events. Um, I think a lot of times we're looking at what is the um, the out of pocket immediate cost. We're not looking at the time invested by staff and by volunteers and uh, and other people uh, to get silent auction items or organize whatever and um, to set up and tear down and all of those things. That, that time is not typically counted, but actually when we look at that time invested, we're probably net negative. Uh, two, I think that. Um, it is transactional in nature, and it's very hard to uh, convert an event-based donor. And I'm talking about your golf tournaments and your runs that are not mission-based. So if you're a golf charity, certainly you should do a golf event. But uh, if you're an arts organization, I'm not really sure why a golf tournament makes a whole lot of sense uh, or a fun run um, or a bike ride makes a lot of sense because that's not that's not where your mission is. Um so it's hard to then convert a donor into a, a long-term supporter because of they, you know, they sponsored somebody on a run or they they wanted to play golf, not, uh, for example, support the arts. So that's kind of I think the the second problem is just the the mission disconnect. And then the third uh, issue I have with uh, with special events is the opportunity cost. So rather than spending six months planning the gala and um, or you know six months or, you know, even if it's, a, if it's a few months setting up the golf tournament or the fun run or the bike ride, um, could we, and, and then netting ten twenty thousand $20,000, could we spend that time building relationships with donors and presenting them with the actual needs of the organization and, um, and asking them to make an outright gift instead of buy a table or sponsor a pole or, you know, sponsor a rider or something like that. So, mm-hmm. That's uh, that's where I think the concerns are. For okay. Me. Okay. I feel like I just got hit by a three a three pronged freight train. Um, in terms of your arguments there, but I'll I'll do my best. Um, uh, let's say we take um all three of your points, which I actually like outside of the bait, totally agree with. Um, do you think there's a role of maybe it's not a special event in terms of your traditional golf outing, but do you think there's a role for like vision casting 
smaller group gatherings where maybe you have one very passionate donor and they, let's say they work at a law firm and you say, let's use your law firm's conference room and let's bring together a small group of individuals that could potentially make really high impact gifts. And let's have like an intimate sort of gathering, almost like a strategy session where maybe the executive team shares some vision and things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, Is that a more effective way that makes having a special event still worth it um, if you tweak oh, it absolutely. in those ways. And I think what you're hitting on there is precisely what needs to be done, which is to um, to really think about what is the mission. Um, and so in a vision setting or a vision casting environment, we are bringing together thought leaders from the organization and um, either existing donors or prospective donors. And um, I, I particularly appreciate what you said about it being a small group where we get to know people, we understand, um, we, we are talking to them by name, we are engaging with them sort of individually or in, in a very small group and um, getting to understand what their passions are and uh, what ignites them and what engages them, but also to be able to kind of direct and drive them towards um, a particular goal. Uh, and to be clear, to be fair, we do a ton of those types of, vet, of events all the time. So um, we're bringing in small groups of people to see how their gift is being used and what the you know future needs are for the community with regard to arts education and how they can be a part of that solution. And uh, so I think that that's a great, great way of uh, utilizing uh, events that don't involve a silent auction item of things that people don't actually need for, you know, <laughs> Like, I don't. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and I think your point about no one counts the cost of the staff time or the opportunity cost of what you could have been focusing on is so important because it's not, it never shows up on any of the expense reports, but that is, you know, that's a huge line item is people's staff time. And we can't just not count it and then call the event a success. So, yeah, I could not agree with you more. And, and I think it's both sides of that, right? So I, I have a dear friend who's a nurse in town. They have a, an event like this. It's a rubber chicken dinner. We've all been to them. Uh, and they have silent auction items. This woman is an incredible nurse. She's uh, She works in the, the NICU with preemie babies. Um, incredibly talented. And she's out there, like, talking to hair salons about giving, a, you know, a hair package. Um, you know, wouldn't it be better if, if this nurse was out there talking about how she's saving people's lives and these immigrants coming to this country and not being able to, not knowing what to do and not knowing who to trust and how she's bringing a new life into the world and how important that is. And, um, you know, share those stories, not, we need a, a spa day package to be able to, to sell, you know, essentially. Absolutely. Okay. I love it. Um, we can jump into some rapid fire questions. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would you say and why? Geez, I hope that um, I would be known as a person of integrity, that I do what I say I'm going to do. Um, I, uh, I, I That would be an aspirational thing. I certainly fail at that uh, more often than I would like, but um, but. That's how I would love to see myself or the word that I would love to be uh, used to describe me. 
Um, is there an exciting shift that you're seeing taking place in the nonprofit world today that you think is actually really positive and really encouraging? Yeah, I think um, the the best thing that's happening in the nonprofit space right now is a trend towards using data and research. Um, I think a little bit there's a buzz word quality to those type of things, making data-driven decisions. But I think um, the rising tide is lifting all boats and people are feeling the pressure to have um, data rather than just kind of fuzzy, this is the way we've always done things, or um, we feel like this is the right thing to do, but without knowing what the the real research and body of knowledge says about those practices. So I think that's a positive trend. Um, Are there people as you've evolved in your development journey um, in being a nonprofit professional that have been particularly helpful to you in terms of inspiring you or teaching you that you maybe want to give shout outs to? Oh, geez, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a great tribe of other fundraisers who, um, who help kind of coach and counsel and disciple me in the, the practice of what we're doing. And they're just great to bounce people, bounce ideas off of. Um, we all worked, a lot of us worked together on some, uh, some reports looking at the trends in the United States. So people like Barbara O'Reilly, Mel Hill Consulting, uh, Clay Buck at Nevada, uh, school for the blind and, and, um, Las Vegas, Heather Hill, who's at Keys uh, now, Mark Pittman, Ashley Belanger, Tysley, um Taylor, uh, uh, trying to think of who else, uh, Ian McQuillan is at Regari, um, Jim Green. Uh, these are all like just really great thought partners. Um, so when I'm in a bind, I'm calling up those people or sending them a text and saying, hey, um, have you dealt with this problem before? What can I do? Uh, what am I missing? Those types of things. I love it. That is quite the list. Um, that is so yeah. cool. Is there something that you understand now that you didn't appreciate to the, the same to the same degree maybe five or ten years ago? I think um, looking back at my wayward, misspent youth, um, the thing that I did not do then that I hope I do more of now is more of the kind of critical thinking and planning and asking why questions rather than what or how questions um, and really considering what is the long-term kind of future ramifications of what it is that I'm doing. So I think a lot of times 10 years ago, I was looking at how can I get to this next quarter, next fiscal year goal and not thinking about what's organizational success look like 20 years from now after I'm gone? What does that, what does that mean uh, for the organization and for the beneficiaries of that organization? And how can I set my successor up for success? Fascinating. Okay. I love it. Um, this has been fascinating. I feel like I've learned so much in just a few short minutes. Um, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you or if they want to learn more about the organization? Well, uh, dmpa.org is uh, the organization I work for, and um, you can find out all about that. And if you're ever in central Iowa, please let me know, and we'd be happy to have you come to a performance. Um, Rigma.net is where I do most of my thinking and writing um, with the, the, and that's the fundraising think tank. Um, I am really not great at social media, but I am on Twitter, Charian underscore Koshi. Uh, and then I'm also on LinkedIn as well. There aren't many of us uh, that are named Charian Koshi, so it should be pretty easy to find. 
<laughs> should be okay to find. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, this has been fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Grant. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast network. We appreciate your support. Until next time.